want to continue moving right along into the fifth of our segments with an understanding being established that beginning in the 1700s, the intensity and the frequency of revival began to escalate. Now, let's just take a little time out for a moment here because I want us to think a little differently about time than maybe we've thought before. Most of us tend to view time as a linear, that time flows like a timeline, that it moves in one direction continuously. But in the things of God, time does not operate just on a linear basis, but rather a circular basis, always moving forward. It's a pattern of cycles just like there's a winter, a spring, a summer, and a fall. And then it picks up with another winter, another spring, another summer, another fall. And in the things of God, there are cycles all repeating themselves while the whole moves forward toward an ultimate destination, which we believe will one day be the coming of the Lord Jesus and ultimately the full manifestation and establishing of the kingdom of God in the earth. But God and the workings of God work more in a circular kind of manner, always moving forward. I want us to think of it almost in the same way as a hurricane. Does anybody know what a hurricane is? You know what a hurricane is. If you've ever been through a hurricane, you know that when the hurricane arrives, it all doesn't come at one big blow. The first part of a hurricane is just a little passing rain shower. And then later, another rain shower, more intense than the first come. Because a hurricane is a swirling band. It has swirling bands of storms within it, all circulating in a counterclockwise fashion. And so, the first arrival of a hurricane, you would not even know it was a hurricane. You would think it was just a brief, quickly passing rain shower, and the sun comes back out. But then another rain shower comes, and it passes, but the sun doesn't come completely back out this time. And then another band will come, and then another band, and with every passing band, the storm gets stronger and the intervals between the bands grow shorter and shorter and shorter, just like labor pains in a woman that's about to give birth. That what began as a passing shower, the closer we get to the eye wall or the center, the eye of a hurricane, the greater the intensity of the wind, the greater the intensity of the storm becomes so that even though we're in these wind bands circulating around the eye of a storm, you can't really tell from one band to the next because it all pretty much looks the same and is experienced the same unless you have a satellite photograph from out of space looking down upon the storm. Is everybody with me? Now, you say, John, what does that have to do with anything? Revivals work in much the same way, in the sense that I'm giving you dates, but I'm not really hung up on dates, because it's very, very hard when we are attempting to attach dates to revivals 
to decide exactly where one starts and where it stops. And another one down the road begins because there is so much overlap. There are so many things. Now, revivals usually have a ground zero, an ignition point, an event, like Father's Day in 1995 in Pensacola, Florida, at Brownsville Assembly of God. That was a date that you could mark on a calendar as a date that revival came in Pensacola. It was not there the week before that. It was there after that date. But it becomes very, very subjective when we start trying to put in dates on things. Now, what I'm trying to get at here is in the 1700s and in the 1800s, there was an ever-increasing, ever-escalating sense of revival in the earth. And they were coming, and they were going, and they were overlapping, and it's hard to say, well, this is a new revival, or is this actually just another band on the last revival? And sometimes it's very, very difficult to differentiate with exact start dates and stop dates. And that's the reason you can pick up books on revival and depending on different authors and historians, you will find different time frames that are identified with the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the General Awakening. And all of these different awakenings and these different revivals, many times you will find differences in the dating. And the reason for those differences is people have a hard time sometimes pointing and saying, well, this was a part of that, and this was something, and that was something. And sometimes it's like the difference between winter and spring and summer and fall all being encompassed within one year, and yet everything changing four times, but what day did it change? We don't go from winter to spring on exactly one day. There's a progression from winter, so that you have a few warm days still in winter, and you have a few cold days in spring. And then you have some warm days before you get hot, but you have a few hot days before, you see what I'm saying here? And there's a blending between winter and spring and summer and fall, all within one cycle, all within the same year. And seasons of revival operate in much the same way. But when we entered the 1700s and then we moved into the 1800s, the frequency and the intensity of the revivals that God was sending in the earth escalated. We've talked about already the first great awakening and how God had used Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield came here and how America was birthed in revival. I mean, do you realize in those days, in the early days of America, that according to Wesley Duell in his book, Revival Fire, which every student of revival needs to read that book, Wesley Duell, Revival Fire, printed by Zondervan Publishing. It's one of the most wonderful books on revival I've ever read. Duell in there cites historical references of atmospheric revival coming in such a way that sailing ships that were coming to America 
actually, it was as though they sailed into a canopy of the presence of God in these revivals in the 1700s and the 1800s. And he cites the references there of the descriptions of within 50 to 100 miles off the eastern seaboard of ships. They said one actually described it as being like sailing into a canopy filled with God. And there were ships that would actually sail into ports in New York, in Boston, in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, with the crew and the passengers on board the sailing ships weeping in the presence of God. They had no telephones, they had no radios, there was no internet. Nobody had any idea what was going on. But it's like the closer they came to the place that God was moving, the, the glory, the presence of God so impacted their lives that revival was breaking out on ships among total strangers that had never been here before, even before they arrived. Well, why do those things happen? Well, those things happen because under an open heaven, you see, when the barrier between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm is breached, we find these kinds of things happening. And the closer people get to it, the greater the impact and influence upon those people. And so the second great awakening, some have called it the second great awakening, and we use dates of around 1780 to 1810. Another wave of revival came just on the heels of one that had just come that we called the first great awakening. We find a second great awakening. I'm not altogether sure if it was a first or a second or a general or a third or whatever, but spiral bands all a part of one hurricane. We just don't know. But we do know that there were numerous visitations of God in those years that profoundly affected multitudes of people. In another session, I read to you the accounts of the Cane Ridge Kentucky Revival in 1800. And how God used that in such a phenomenal way. The Cane Ridge, Kentucky revival was instrumental in the establishment of Methodism. Many people do not realize that Methodism was born out of revival. It was a revival. It was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began on Fetter's Lane with John Wesley, its founder, when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And out of that came awakenings. And it was really Methodism in America actually came to be because of the war for independence. Because when America, when the colonies broke from England, up until that time, people affiliated with Wesley related back to England and Wesleyans. And here are all these Wesleyans in the colonies without a Wesley and without an England. And it was decided that in order to be able to serve communion in the colonies, that that was sort of the foundation of the beginnings of Methodism. But these people were not concerned about building a denomination or an organization. They wanted to run with the fire of God. The founder of Methodism in America was a man by the name of Francis Asbury. And Francis Asbury used to tell his preachers that when you go to preach, feel for the power. When you preach, reach out and believe for the power of God. Those followers of Wesley, the circuit riders, traveled up and down and back and across your state 
from town to town. They called them circuit riders because they would go like on a circuit through an entire region by horseback, preaching in various places on a regular basis. But these were people that were filled with the fire of God. The Cane Ridge, Kentucky Revival was a powerful, powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had a profound and lasting effect upon Christianity that ultimately became known as the Bible Belt in the South, in the mid-Atlantic states and down in the southern states. It was the Cane Ridge, Kentucky revival that had such a profound impact in making all of that a reality. Some people have called the general awakening the years between 1830 and 1840. And the man most associated with this great move of God was the revivalist Charles Finney. Charles Finney had been a lawyer. He was an atheist in Chicago that had a visitation of God while he was alone out praying to a God that he wasn't even sure he even existed. God touched this lawyer, Charles Finney, with a powerful, powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit. And God began to use him in phenomenal ways. He was the first evangelist that utilized what has become known as the altar call. Because the problem that Finney was having is when Finney preached, people were so stricken with the power of God and the glory of God, they're just weeping in the presence of God. They're just weeping for their sins and crying out to mercy. It was actually reported of Finney's meetings that sometimes the glory would come and the people would be so convicted of their sins that Charles Finney would have to walk through the building going to people one at a time trying to lead them to the Lord through their weeping and their sobbing because he had lost total control of the services. People were just oblivious to Finney's presence because of the deep, deep sorrow for their sins. Charles Finney carried the anointing for revival. I believe it was the spirit of the fear of the Lord that followed Charles Finney. There was a report about Finney's ministry in which he had gone to a textile mill in Chicago, Illinois. The man that owned the mill had been in one of Finney's meetings and had invited Finney to come. And they were walking through the textile mill and the owner of the mill was pointing out to Charles Finney what the employees were doing and what this machine would do and what these employees were working on and how this piece of equipment was serving this function. Charles Finney's just walking through a textile mill, taking a tour of what's going on. They had no idea that like the waves, the wake following a boat going across a still lake, there was just like a wave of revival that was following him through a textile mill. And people were dropping to their knees, weeping, so that by the time they got to the back of the textile mill, revival had come to a textile mill, and 3,000 people were getting saved, and the owner of the textile mill had to suspend work for the rest of the day because all of his employees were so stricken with the seriousness of their sin. I mean, it just seemed like all Charles Finney had to do was just show up, and the fire of God would fall and revival would break out. In cities like Rochester, New York, Rochester, New York was profoundly affected by revival because of Finney. 
sociologists 150 years later point back to the revivals of Charles Finney as 150 years later, the fruit of those revival remain to this day. The impact that it had. Why? Because all the politicians got saved. All the lawyers got saved. All the doctors got saved. All the pastors got saved. That's always a good thing. All the leaders in education, in schools, got radically saved. And Rochester, New York became a place where Jesus was famous and where God was honored and God was reverenced. And sociologists 150 years later can point back to the lasting effects of revival. My brothers and sisters, understand something with me. Revival is a good thing. And when the presence of God comes and the glory of God is manifested, It brings blessing. The reason America has been America and has had the reputation that we've had has not been because we were smarter, we worked harder, we were better people, we had better ideas, we had a better climate or better natural resources. America has been America, the envy of the entire world for its 200 plus year history. Because for one reason, we've been a blessed nation. That was the secret. I've been all over the globe, and everywhere I've ever been, all they wanted to talk about was America. I was just in Pakistan just a few weeks ago. The Islamic Republic of Pakistan. And you know what they want to talk about? What is America like? I mean, do you realize that you can watch CNN, Fox News, ESPN, on cable television is the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. I'm from Tampa, Florida. I was watching a baseball game live from Tampa, Florida when we were playing the New York Yankees in Pakistan. They don't broadcast live from London or Paris or Rome or Buenos Aires or Tokyo or Mumbai, for goodness sakes. But they do broadcast live from America. I've been all over Africa. I mean, I remember I almost died in Africa a few years ago. I was out in the middle of nowhere, and the food was horrible. It was horrible. And we had this little television, and every night at 6 o'clock, they did a Burger King commercial from Germany. And I would look forward to 6 o'clock to watching a Burger King commercial being advertised in German in the middle of a jungle in Africa. I can still see the Whopper, you know, (laughs) that big juicy Whopper. I mean, I could just taste it. Six o'clock every night. I don't know what they were saying. It didn't matter. It was all in German, but I know what a Whopper is. You see, people that are constantly condemning and criticizing America, people that'll do that, they're just telling you, hey, I've never been anywhere else. I mean, I just recently had to send my passport back to the State Department to get extra pages put in it because I've got so many customs stamps in there they didn't want to stamp it anymore because it's just so covered in stamps. And I sent the passport to Washington so they could put 10 more pages in it 
to get me through the next couple of years until I need to renew it. I've been all over the world, and I'm here as one tonight to tell you, everywhere I've ever been, they wanted to talk about America. Why? Because we've been blessed. Because of the influence of the glory of God in this land. When revival came down in Central America, in Guatemala, when the glory came and revival came to Almalanga, how agriculture exploded. Tomatoes, I mean, as big as volleyballs. I mean, carrots, as long as your arm. Why? Because the glory of God was there. And that's been the reason that we have been America, was because of the blessing of God. In Charles Finney's day, they even called the cities of places like Troy, New York, and Utica, New York, Rochester, New York, They called that whole region the burned-over region. And the reason they called it the burned-over region is revival had come and burned over the whole thing, and you couldn't find anybody that wasn't saved. I mean, if you wanted to go lead somebody to the Lord, you better not go to the burned-over region because they're all saved there because of the revivals that God brought in that region in those years through the life and ministry of Charles Finney, the revivalist. One of the greatest revivals, I believe, in American history was the prayer revival, and we alluded to that in an earlier session, that began in September of 1857 through Jeremiah Lantfear, a Christian businessman in the financial district of New York City. Lantfear began a noontime prayer meeting where people could come and they could pray just on their lunch hour. That's all they did was pray. They had written rules in that prayer revival that no one could pray more than once and no one could pray more than three minutes simply because there were so many people trying to pray. And people were coming by the thousands in that two-year period. 50,000 people a week were being saved at the height of that revival. Thousands of people were being added to the local churches during those days of outpouring between 1857 and 1859 as God visited this nation in a profound way. It is estimated that one out of ten people living in America at that time were saved in that two-year period. But that figure really is not an accurate figure because the population of America extended from coast to coast and the revival was located primarily along the eastern seaboard and more often than not in the New England states. But there were 200 cities in the state of New York alone and all these statistics are in the book Revival Glory where we actually list the names of the cities and the states where whole towns would close down every day at noontime for noontime prayer. 5,000 people a day gathered on the lawn of the Capitol in Washington, including the President of the United States, including members of the Senate and the Congress and Supreme Court justices, every day praying in Washington, D.C. Oh, that God would do it again. You see, I tell you these stories to build faith in your heart that the things we preach about and teach about and that we pray for, we're not praying for God to manufacture something that no one has ever seen. We're not asking God to do something that's impossible, that has never been done before. 
We're asking God to come out of your great said, loving kindness and grace and mercy and kindness and visit our nation again. Open the heavens and send revival once more. As you have in other generations, oh God, do it again. Do it again, do it again, do it again. We're not here praying that God would bless the Easter Bunny, that God would send salvation to the home of the Tooth Fairy. We're here asking God to come and do it all over again because we need for God to come and do it all over again. And if God doesn't come and do it all over again, we're sunk. Now, a lot of people haven't gotten that memo yet, but the sooner they get it, the better it's going to be for all of us. But God said, I will heal your land. I will heal your land. I will bless your land. I will bring blessing to the land again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God said, I'll fix it because he's a God of love and kindness and grace and mercy who wants to send revival once more. But it's the church. See, the only thing holding up revival is not the devil. It's not demons. It's not principalities. It's not powers. It's not Harry Potter. It's the church. And when the church gets it, and we believe that God wants to do it again, and we contend for God to do it again, and we meet the conditions for God to do it again, guess what happens? God will do it again. It's just that simple. In 1844, a woman was born. Her name was Mariah Woodsworth Etter. Mariah Woodsworth Etter lived until 1924. God called her into the ministry. She argued with God for 20 years trying to explain to God how God doesn't call women into the ministry. After 20 years, she finally gave in to do what God had called her to do. But God used Mariah Woodsworth Etter in And I like to mention some of these names in the places that God sends us that, you know, everybody's heard of John Wesley. Everyone's heard of Charles Finney. But my brothers and sisters, these names of these famous revivalists, they were just the names and faces that were attached to an army of revivalists that God has used. Some greatly widely known, some lesser known, most completely unknown that carried the fire and the glory of God and God used them in a phenomenal way. Mariah Woodsworth Etter was one of those. And she traveled her ministry. They had covered wagons. They didn't have hotels like we do today. And they had tents. God would send them and they would go into a town and set up their tents for them to live in and cook over an open fire and began having meetings in those towns. And the heavens would open, and the glory of God would come in those towns in phenomenal ways. She'd stay four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks in a single town. And when the meeting would be over, they'd have to build new church buildings just to accommodate all the new believers that had gotten saved in the meetings. So great was the glory of God in Mariah Woodsworth Edder's meetings It was recorded that in some of those places, passenger trains would be passing through the town where she was at night when the meetings were going on, 
and would stop in the railway station to let off passengers and pick up passengers. And people would actually come streaming off the trains into the railway stations, weeping under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, asking the railway employees where they might go to find a church. And the railroad employees would point them and say, just follow the road out of town. There's a tent out there. You'll see a bunch of torches and lanterns and fires out there with horses and buggies. There's an old woman out there preaching. And this happens every night when the train goes through town. And they'd forget their luggage and everything. They wouldn't even know what state they were in, much less town they were in. And they would go out there and get saved in her meetings. Why? Because the heavens had been opened. The heavens had been opened over that town and God was moving in a phenomenal way. One of the signs and wonders that was common in Mariah Woods with Edder's meetings were trances, where people would get caught up in a trance. If you've ever read the book, The Diary of Signs and Wonders, published by Harrison House, which is really a compilation of about four smaller books, it was about the life and ministry of Mariah Woods with Edder. There's a photograph in there of her standing up like I'm standing here with her Bible with her finger up like this preaching. And what few people realize is that picture was taken while she was in a trance. She was in St. Louis, Missouri preaching one night and it was like she just became a statue. Never moved a muscle. For 24 hours she stood there. Over 100,000 people walked in solemn silence through the tent in that 24-hour period to see this sign and wonder of this old woman up there like this, like a human statue. The next night, at precisely the moment, she starts preaching again, picked right up with the same sentence. She'd left off, and I mean, she was wondering, why is everybody lined up? What are you doing? She stood there frozen, literally, with her Bible like this for 24 hours. I'll dare anybody here to hold your Bible perfectly still for two minutes. People would be struck down 25 miles away from where she was ministering under the power of God and would have visions and fallen out in barns and farms and workplaces. Why? Because Mariah Wood with Edder would come and the heavens would open and God would come and would visit, and people would have profound experiences with God. And there were many like her in those days, in the 1700s and the 1800s. There were many people like her that walked in great power anointings, great realms of glory, followed them everywhere they went. In the late 1800s, there was a great surge of emphasis on prayer for worldwide revival. And God began to stir people, Christians all over the world. There was no internet. There was no email. There was no television. There was no telephone. And yet there was one Holy Spirit who began to stir in places like Japan and Korea and China in Australia, in England, in America, in Argentina, and Brazil, in South Africa, and India, and all of these places around the world, totally oblivious that anyone else was praying, people began to sense 
that God wanted to do something wonderful on a worldwide basis, and they began praying in that direction. Andrew Murray was one of those people down in South Africa that was praying for revival to come. That whole ministry in South Africa was based on prayer. He's written some wonderful books. But God was stirring in their hearts. Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, in the late 1800s, they set aside every Saturday night as a night of fasting and a night of prayer for revival, that God would come and would visit America, that God would come and would visit the nations of the world again, that God would open the heavens and reveal Himself in such a way in atmospheric revival. It was happening all over the globe that there was a great stirring in the hearts of people, intercessors, to pray for something they'd never seen on a global scale. Now, there'd been great revivals in the 1700s, hallelujah, great revivals in the 1800s, but really what revivals do to people more than anything else is make them desperately hungry for the next one. How many know what I'm talking about? People have asked me, Brother John, what did revival do for you? I say, well, it ruined my life. That's what revivals do to people. Revivals ruin people's lives. They're no longer content with this world and the things of this world. They want God. They want His glory. They want His power. They want open heavens. I mean, however good it is, it's never enough. They want some more. And so all that God had done in the 1800s had built a foundation of desperation and hunger and thirst in the hearts of people all over the world who began to pray, totally oblivious to the fact that anyone else was praying, which laid the foundation for all that was to follow in the 20th century. God was building a foundation. Now you say, John, why are you talking about a prayer movement in the 18th? I believe we're right back at that same place again tonight. Everywhere I go, all over America, all over Canada, Europe, the places that God has sent us in the earth, I find everywhere that there's a people out there. They're not big crowds. They're not large, large gatherings. But there are people out there that are desperately hungry and carry a burden in their heart and a longing in their heart because they're convinced in their heart that if God will come, if God will move, if God will touch, if God will bless, all will be well again. They're not just gluttons with the gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy, I'll take all you can gimme mindset of what's in it for me. They see a bigger picture. They see a bigger need. They see the masses of people. They see nations, nations just literally beginning to unravel morally, beginning to unravel spiritually, beginning to unravel now financially, economically in our generation. And so these folks are not just in it for themselves, but they're in it contending for nations, nations to be saved. And I find them everywhere that I go. I was in Alaska a few weeks ago. I found them in Alaska. Oh, God, send revival to Alaska again. Here we are here. Oh, God, send revival here. All across the land. 
there are people that are praying and interceding, contending with God because they're convinced. They're absolutely convinced that God can fix it. Politicians cannot fix it. Stimulus packages cannot fix it. Oprah cannot fix it. Dr. Phil cannot fix it. But atmospheric revival can fix it. And the fix that we need is the one that God can deliver. And he's willing to do it because he's a God of goodness, loving kindness, mercy, and grace. Amen.